Our scripture reading is from two passages, which I think will be displayed shortly. Uh, the first one is Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And the second one is 1 Peter 1, 8 to 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. We're in our uh, second week of our summer series, which is on the, the fruit of the Spirit. And it's a really important uh, topic for us to consider as a church and as Christians, because what the passage is saying that we just read, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, what this passage is saying is that these things that we just read, these nine attributes, will be the, the attributes, will be the marker, will be the character of those who are truly Christian. Those who are truly Christian, no matter what your natural personality, your natural persuasion is, no matter what your history is or what has happened to you, no matter how you're individually put on the hook, no, no matter whether you're from the South or from the North or are man or woman, no matter who you are and what your history is, these will be the markers. These nine attributes will be the markers of those who are truly Christians. Uh, Paul is saying that our, our lives will produce the, this, these fruit. Our lives will produce this fruit like an apple tree produces apples or a pear tree produces pear. It's only what's natural for that tree to do. In fact, it should be natural or rather supernatural for us. This is what Jesus said about this whole concept in John 15, 5. He said this, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides or dwells in me and I in him. That is what the, the picture of what a branch does in a vine or in the trunk of a tree. The, the branch dwells within the, or comes out of, dwells within, if you will, the trunk or the vine, but it's also the power of the vine and the life of the vine that flows into the branch. And he says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So there's two things there he's laying out. One is he's laying out an expectation that we as believers will bear fruit, but also a great freedom and a great promise for how that happens. There's an expectation that we'll bear fruit, but there's a promise for how that happens. We should all be loving and joyous and peaceful and all down the line, we should all be people who are marked by that. But he says, this is how that happens, by you abiding in me and my life flowing through you. So that's why we call it the fruit of the Spirit, so that the fruit of the nature and character of God comes and pours out of the believer just as a pear flows out of the branch of a pear tree or an apple flows out of the branch of an apple tree. So today we're looking at joy, which is the second in this line of the fruit of the Spirit. And we want to ask two questions, I think, as I've been thinking about joy this past week and a half or so or, or longer. But as I've been thinking about it for this sermon, as I've been pouring over this passage in Galatians and this passage in Peter where he talks about what joy for the believer is like, there's two questions I think we want to ask. First is, why would joy be a fruit of the Spirit? Have you ever thought about that? And kind of interesting. Why would joy be a fruit of the Spirit? 
Like we can kind of get love and we can kind of get, you know, gentleness and goodness. Like those things kind of make sense, right? Like those are moral things. But what he is saying is that joy itself is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it's not only a fruit of the Holy Spirit, but it's so important that he puts it secondly right behind love. Why would joy be a fruit of the Spirit? And then secondly, why does it matter whether we have joy or not? If I'm a Christian, if I'm just a good person and I live a moral life and I participate in church and I pay my taxes and I do my part and I don't speed too much and I'm generally kind to my neighbor and you know I'm kind of in the ballpark. Like, Why would it matter whether I have joy or not? Why does it matter? Couldn't I be just a good Christian and just kind of be, have a sour face all the time or kind of be gritting my teeth through life? And is being joyful, is it like faking the funk, really? Is it just like acting nice and acting happy when you're actually not? So uh, we should read this as a, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and acting like you're happy even when you're not. Faking people out around you. And you guys know that we can do that because if you've been around church very long, you know what fake joy and fake happiness looks like, right? It's sort of been, for better or for worse, a marker of church life. You're going at it in the car with your friend, your wife, your kids. Like your kids are throwing stuff at you and you're trying to reach back and grab them from the front seat. You know that one I'm talking about, right? And you walk inside and it's like, hi, how are you? How's the Lord blessing you this morning? <laughs> Praise the Lord. It's so fake. And it's like, but that's, that's, that can't be what he's talking about here in this passage, can it be? Because what he's talking about is something that's supernatural, just like we talked about love last week, a, a supernatural kind of love that flows from the very nature and character of God. Joy should be something that flows from the very nature and character of God through us as believers that we experience and overflows into the people around us. And here's why that is important, because all of us, every single person in this room, every single person that you have known in your life, every one of your neighbors, no matter how sour they may look at you whenever you leave and, and whenever you drive up into the house, no matter how irritated they get with you about your dog or about your grass, no matter that person at work that just gets under your skin and you get under their skin, no matter any person that you know, no matter how miserable they may look or how happy they may look, here's what I can tell you that they are on in life. They are on a quest for joy. Every one of us in life is on a quest for joy. It's a very personal quest for every single one of us. Every single one of us is in a quest looking for joy. Think about, this is what FOMO really is built on. This is really what, the, what social media envy is built on. This, this fear, this idea that there's joy in life that I really want. I want to have joy. Not, not just to be happy, but I want to have joy deep in my soul that transcends the, the mundane of life. I want to have joy in my heart. I want to experience a life of joy. And I look out on social media, it's like a window into the world. And I have this fear inside me that everybody else around me is experiencing it. And I'm the only one who's not. Everyone in life is experiencing joy. They figured out the secret of life and I'm the only one stuck in here feeling terrible about myself and wondering if this is all that there is to life. We are all on a secret and very personal quest for joy. And that's what makes it secret and personal is because we're ashamed and scared to tell people around us just how much we are searching for joy and just how little bit we find in most of life. It's like, 
sticking with the fruit analogy and mixing them up a little bit. It's like picking fruit and it's, it looks like, man, that apple looks glorious. That peach, we're in peach season, like that peach looks beautiful and glorious and you take a bite of it and it is that one of those mushy, gross peaches inside. Like, I, it didn't deliver the promise of pleasure like I felt that it should. It didn't deliver the promise of joy. That's what most of us feel about the experiences of life. That relationship, that friendship, that marriage, that career, that education. I got those letters on the end of my name. I, I tried all those things, and yet I still haven't found joy. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is really about. The writer, the preacher in Ecclesiastes said, I tried everything I could possibly try. And I had everything at my fingertips to do so. I had almost limitless resources. I had almost limitless power. And I had almost limitless wisdom. And I explored and tried everything I could possibly try. And I soaked up every bit of joy I could possibly suck out of every single thing. And yet it left me wanting more. It left me hungrier. It left me thirstier than it felt before. Lord Byron, who I'm not... Mr. Poetry Man. I just happened to read somebody else quote Lord Byron. So that is not, to make sure that you don't feel like I'm smarter than I actually am, Lord Byron, who I do know is a poet, had these two lines in one of his poems. He said, there's not a joy in the world, that there's not a joy the world can give like that it takes away when the glow of early thought decline and feelings full dull decay. There's not a joy the world can give like it takes away. And isn't that kind of the sum up a lot of our lives? A quest, a very personal quest for joy. A fear that we'll be found out that we're the only ones that haven't discovered it. And yet every joy that the world gives, every joy that we experience, every joy that we grab hold to, even if it for a while is elation, after a while just kind of dissipates. We don't often talk about our own personal quest for joy because we're afraid. We're afraid of two things. We're afraid of being the only ones who miss out, but also we're afraid that maybe this is all that there is. Tim Keller said this, the only people who know just how deep their lack of joy is, just what an implosion is going on in the soul, are people who have been very disappointed or people who have been absolutely fulfilled in their pursuit of their joy objects. What that means, it means these are the people that are disappointed, who, who, who feel who feel the actual true deep weight of how deep their lack of joy is, are the people who have been to the mountain or have been crushed by the mountain. People have been to the mountaintop and they've tasted everything like the writer of Ecclesiastes, and he says, I've tasted it all. But it doesn't return. And those who have been crushed on the bottom beneath the mountain, who have never simulated, they've tasted joy in their life. Those are the people who really know. For the, for the rest of us, what usually happens is, is that we pursue the best thing that we can find behind a true joy. We pursue a, a lack of sadness or a, or a lack of trouble. Or, or really what we actually, actually end up settling for is a, a dullness and amusement in place of joy. I want to dull the pain of my disappointment, of my lack of joy, and I will find whatever I can, outside influences, chemicals, relationships, anything that will try to dull that, or I will just amuse my way all the way to the end. 
And they'll settle for amusement rather than true joy. But here's where Christianity makes a daring and an outrageous promise. It's so daring and outrageous that actually, that's really what I spent most of this week in preparation trying to dwell on. How do I talk about joy without overpromising? And I can't do it because Jesus and the Bible constantly overpromises joy and he overdelivers on that promise. He, this is what the, the claims of Christianity make. It, it, it gives this claim, it makes this outrageous and daring promise that the fulfillment of every one of our very personal and very disappointing quests for joy can be found in the heart of Christianity. Your very personal and your very longing, the, the tiresome quest for joy can be found in Christianity and it makes that promise. Not that it can fulfill that, not that there's a pathway through Christianity to joy, but the very basis of Christianity is to know a joy that transcends anything that we've ever been searching for. Anything we've ever tasted, anything we've ever reached for. This is how it's phrased in the, the text that Donna read for us, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, he's talking about Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Listen to that, that wording. You believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, a glorious and inexpressible joy, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation and of your souls. Now, notice what Peter is saying. He's writing to Christians, and he says, this is what you experience, joy inexpressible and full of glory. A joy that you can't put words to. You can't sing a song that feel, perfectly fits, your, describes the joy in your soul, and it's glorious. He doesn't say you can experience this joy or you might experience this joy. He's talking to believers who are going through a difficult time, in fact. And he says he's so confident. He's not there with them in the city with them. And he writes this. He's so confident that he writes this in the letter. He says, you are experiencing it now. He's confident that they do. And what makes that claim and that, 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 that statement even more outrageous, even more daring, is that he's writing to people who are actually struggling. He's not writing to those who've experienced no loss and who are, are perfectly wealthy and everything is going great. Their lawn is manicured and their kids are doing great and all their relationships are all perfectly in, in perfect like, alignment at all times. He's writing to believers who are being persecuted. He's writing to believers who are struggling, who he go, what he describes as, he says, they're going through fiery trials. That's the reason Peter is writing this letter, because he's writing to believers who are struggling, believers who are going through a very difficult situation, so difficult and so hard that he describes them as fiery. You see, Christianity doesn't promise this. This is not the promise of Christianity. As daring and outrageous as the promise of joy is, Christianity doesn't promise your best life now. It doesn't say things will always be okay. It doesn't say your relationships will never break down or that you will get everything you've ever wanted in life 
Or you'll get married when you thought you would. Or your kids will be the way they thought you would. Or you'll have the amount of money in your bank account that you thought they, it would. It doesn't say everything will be okay. It, it doesn't even say that, that Christianity will dull you so you aren't affected by your problems. He describes them as fiery. You're feeling them. They're in the middle of them. Christianity doesn't promise your best life now, but it does promise a brand new kind of life. It, find, it promises a new life that you find at work within you, even whenever you know, even when you're in fiery trials, whenever you know Jesus. That's what Peter says a few verses before this in verse three of chapter one. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he starts off the letter, really. According to his great mercy, notice this phrase, he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's caused us to be born and begin to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So then think about verse eight now again. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Do you see that? What he's saying is that those who believe in Jesus are those who rejoice with that kind of outrageous joy no matter what is going on around them. Outward circumstance doesn't determine the joy of the believer. Peter says that we rejoice even though when he's talking to them and even to us as well, even though they haven't and we haven't personally seen Jesus. Now, Peter had, which makes this kind of statement interesting. Peter had seen Jesus. Peter had lived life with Jesus. He intimately knew him. He knew him incredibly well. But yet he says that that, even knowing Jesus personally, face to face, living life with him, going to sleep in the same room he went in, waking up, having breakfast, lunch, and dinner with him, seeing the miracles, hearing him teach, he says that isn't the source of true joy. The source of true joy is a new power that comes to dwell within the heart of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. That's the source of joy. And it's so powerful. It's so powerful and so new that he equates it to the same thing Jesus equated to. It's like being born over again. It's the presence of Jesus in the life of the believer through the Holy Spirit so that even though we haven't physically seen him, we know him. We are connected to him. We are in union with him. We've been united to Christ through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that power, that life is at work within the believer and it's so powerful and so fresh and so otherworldly, it's like being born again to what he calls a living hope. Not just a hope for the future, but a living hope that is like a fire burning below the heart of the believer. And here's how he describes here, right off the bat in this letter, here's how he describes the nature of that new birth, a living hope that results in outrageous, inexpressible, glorious joy. Outrageous, 
inexpressible, glorious joy. Here's what he's saying. Knowing Jesus, not just knowing about him, not knowing of him, not having heard about him, not done Bible studies for him, not sat in church for a long time, but personally, intimately, in your soul, knowing Jesus, being born again to a living hope, that is the fountainhead of joy. That is the fountainhead of true joy. That's where all true joy flows out of. And every momentary fleeting joy that we experience in any other thing in this life, any other thing in this world are supposed to be and are made to be by God things that point to their source or the author of those joys. And that's why they dissipate and disappear when they're not connected to the fountainhead of true joy. When we try to make any of those other things the fountainhead, it doesn't work. If we try to make them the source of joy, they don't work right. But when they flow from the fountainhead, the, the source of life in Christ, all of a sudden, everything takes on new depth and new meaning. And a new joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Knowing Jesus is the fountainhead of true joy. Our joy is the result of us being made sharers in all that is his. Think about this is how it works emotionally. When you really believe and understand that as a human being, you are made in the image of God, but you have run from him as hard as you possibly can for all your life, that he is the source and the fountainhead of joy that you were created for, and you seek and try to find joy in any and all other places other than him, but you discover that he looked at you in all of your boneheadedness, in all of your sinfulness, in all of your wrongheadedness, and he came after you and saved you and pulled him to himself and said, here, let me take the scales off your eyes and blow breath into your lungs and bring you to life so that you can see that I am the source that you've been looking for. And I forgive you in a costly forgiveness that requires sacrifice on your behalf, that required me to take my life so that you could have mine. Whenever you see that he did that, you discover joy. Joy is the result of being made sharers in all that is his whenever you know you don't deserve to share a thing. Our joy is a result of receiving all that is his only by grace. You know what the Bible calls us? You know what the Bible calls you if you're a believer? It calls you an heir of God. That statement alone should floor us. Because what it's saying is that Jesus Christ in his work on the cross on your behalf and in saving you has adopted you into the family of God so you are the beneficiary just as Jesus Christ is of all the benefits that come by being a son of God or the son of God. All of the benefits that are Christ's are now yours. And whenever you realize that, and you realize where you were before, joy erupts in your soul. Now, we've had our foster daughter for two years now, and we've been through a long process from the very beginning, day one. We got her when she was two weeks old, and from day one, 
We've called her ours. We've loved her, cared for her, the same love and affection that we've shown our other children. But up till this Thursday, she hasn't shared my name. Probably shouldn't talk about that. This, this Thursday, she will. She won't be loved anymore on Friday than she is today, but she will have a claim, just as my other two upon me, equal no matter whether they came out of our loins or not. And that is the position that you and I have in Christ. We have been adopted and brought in and made heirs of God. And we get to claim all of the benefits that Christ has for himself as the eternal, only begotten Son of God. We get to claim all of those benefits. That's what happens when we pray. We call out, that's why we pray in the name of Christ. We call out to God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. We cry out to God the Father and we plead with him to work on our behalf. And the reason that we can do that is because we've been made heirs of God through Jesus Christ. But see, the deserver can never be truly joyful. The one who thinks that they deserve can never be truly joyful because there's a satisfaction in getting what you have earned and what you've worked hard for. That's true. Guys, build that into work. There's a satisfaction built into working and earning something, but it doesn't equate to to true joy. It doesn't last. It can't last. At the end of the day, you gotta go back and you gotta earn more. You gotta work harder. You gotta work your way to the next level. Every day for the one who is a deserver ends in a recommitment to go out and reprove yourself tomorrow. It is tiresome and never ending. The deserver can never be truly joyful because it requires a re-upping every night whenever before you go to sleep and every morning when you wake back up to prove yourself once again or you become angry and resentful when you don't think you're getting what you are truly owed or you truly deserve. It's not the pathway to joy either way. But true joy is concrete and it's lasting. True joy is held by an anchor. That's Christ and his work on our behalf and his gracious love towards us. True joy finds Pleasure in all, being a beneficiary of Christ, of God, whenever I earned nothing on my own and deserved nothing. And that kind of joy is the joy that, that flows even in the middle of tears. It's been interesting having conversations with people this week about joy. I had a conversation with somebody. She, she said, I want you to know and I want people to know that in my darkest hour, I laid there tears flowing down my face and there was a joy that girded me. There's a joy that held me in the middle of tears. This kind of joy, true joy, flowers even in the middle of adversity and maybe especially in adversity. Adversity. 
Isn't it amazing that joy is an essential fruit of the Spirit in our lives? What a glorious salvation. What a glorious Savior who would make joy internally apart, inexpressibly, and and unable to be uh, divided from the rest of salvation. It is absolutely a core bedrock of what it means to be a Christian. So do you see why having joy is so important and so essential to Christianity? It's that kind of joy that keeps you as a Christian going to the end. Even when you're not getting your best life now. It's that kind of joy that showcases the nature of God through us to the people around us. It's that kind of joy that proves the gospel to be true. Because it's not only inexpressible, but it is unexplainable. And it especially proves the gospel to be true in its durability and its strength in the hardest times. We're talking about a a stainless steel joy, a platinum, uranium joy. Here's something that in this passage, though, that has somewhat puzzled people who have studied it. The, The language here mixes somewhat between the present and the future. Peter is definitely, in one sense, talking about our hope for the future and how that hope sustains us. In verse 5, he talks about how believers are being guarded for our future salvation. In verse 7, he talks about how the the trials and the testing of our, the genuineness of our faith is so that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. That's the end. There's one sense where he's pointing to a future hope that, that that we won't experience, a fullness of salvation that we won't experience until our bodies are, are made purified and glorified and we stand with Christ in glory. As Christians, we do have a great hope. And that hope is the true hope of the world. It's, the, it's future salvation for all those who are believers and all of creation itself. It is, this, it is this hope and this truth that Jesus is indeed making all things new. Jesus is making all that is wrong and has been wrong. He is in the process of making it all right again. And as his adopted children, we're at the very center of that great work. And so we look ahead with great hope to the future. And that brings a certain amount of joy. It's not a cheap joy. It's a costly joy. But it's a joy that is bedrock in the strength of our Lord and the truth of the cross and the resurrection and the hope of where he's taking us. For the believer, there's a a dull ache of hope and joy that is always pointing us to a greater future. For the believer, there's always a dull ache of joy that is pushing us and making us long for it. Paul said that we are groaning like creation is groaning for full salvation to be accomplished. We ache for more. We ache for greater We ache for bodies that aren't decaying, for relationships that aren't breaking, for a world that's not in crisis. It's that we ache for true joy to be fully realized. For the Christian, that ache is real and that ache is hope. 
We ache because we know it will happen. We ache because it, we ache because it fu- hasn't fully happened yet, but we long for it. It's pointing to something that will happen. We know that it will because it has already begun. The resurrection is the proof of that. And that, the fact that it has already begun, is what I think is the real powerful, the real power in this passage. It's what leads some people who are studying this passage from the outside in, it leads them scratching their head. And it's this word in verse 9. It's this word called obtaining. Obtaining for yourself the salvation. That word means to receive or to cause to experience. It's a, a sense of ownership. It means to acquire or to gain something. And here's what Peter is saying. In the middle of difficult times, Christians stick to Jesus. In the middle of difficult times, Christians stick to Jesus. They love him. They stick to him even though they haven't seen him. Not only that, he says, but they rejoice in those times. They rejoice in ways that are utterly inexpressible and full of glory or glorious. They have a joy in their souls that is an echo of heaven and the angels. They do so because they are already right now. Even though we have a future where it will be fully realized, we are already right now obtaining that outcome of our faith. We are already obtaining that salvation somehow. We are already, though the full salvation is coming, somehow we're getting to lick the batter of the unfinished cake. You know what that's like, right? When your mom gives you the bowl or the mix or the, or the beater, and you're like, I, I, the cake's not ready yet, but I get to taste it. I know it's coming. It's not the full state that it's going to be in, but I know it's going to be good. We are obtaining even now the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And that is the true daring and outrageous promise of Christianity that you can receive a joy here and now that is otherworldly, but you can only receive it. You can only receive that joy. You can't go and earn it. You can't clear your mind enough to get to that state. It doesn't work by you working hard and being good and just hoping that you made it the end. Hoping that you're good enough. The Christian is already obtaining salvation. Our joy is already realized. It's a fruit that we obtain and we experience freely in Jesus. Oh, to be in Jesus. Oh, to be in Jesus and experience the perfect love and joy that is found only there in receiving him. Full salvation for me and my family and this world is coming in the future. There's a lot of pain here. There's a lot of disappointment here. There's sadness and there's mourning. Like the psalmist, I cry. I personally cry. How, how long, O oh Lord? I cry out in hurt and I cry out in confusion. There's untimely death around me. There is disease in my body. There's decay around me. But what I'm saying is that there's a joy in me that I can't explain. I didn't put it there. I couldn't conjure it up. There have been times that I've wanted to give up, but I found it there. There have been times where I was fed up, but it's kept me. There are times where I felt I was done and it moved me. 
I have a joy that I know that is greater than any loss I will experience. I have a joy that I know is a gain that promises to swallow up every tear and every pain. I rejoice this morning with that kind of joy. Oh, oh, I hope, I hope you know that joy. That word glorious, that word glorious is a, a form of the Greek word doxa. It means glory or the outshining of God's nature. It's the weight of God's presence. And what he's saying is Christianity has a doxa joy to it. And I hope soon that that's what we are known for. I hope we are known for a doxa joy. I'm praying the people of doxa that we get some doxa joy. So in closing, what do you do if you lack joy? What do you do if something's blocking your joy? I think we ask these questions of ourselves and try to answer them. Honestly and for truly, where does your hope lie? What have you placed your hope upon? I might get that promotion. I might land that big account. Finally, my, I might get married. Finally, my husband might stop doing those things. Finally, my kids will get out of the house. Finally, I'll have that car. Are you as a believer experiencing salvation now? Are you experiencing and enjoy, enjoying Jesus? Here's what I'm saying. We shouldn't settle for not experiencing the joy of our salvation. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before my God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Where does our hope lie? In God's presence. So how do you stir joy? Well, first you remind yourself of God's promises. Remind yourself of them. Open his word and remind yourself of his promises. And like a child, come to him simply and ask for joy. Don't go out and try to be fake joy. Ask God for joy. And then, here's the one little practice I will give you. One little practical, this rubber meets the road kind of thing that you can do. And you can practice it even this morning. And that is, you sing even in, the even in the dungeon. Paul and Silas were locked up in the dungeon. It doesn't tell us they started feeling great or awesome. We don't know how they felt. But it says they started singing. I would imagine it would be pretty awkward at first in that dark, rat-infested, disease-plagued hole in the ground. 
Imagine even the peer pressure in, the, in that space. They probably, probably felt we're just gonna annoy these people who are down here. But it says they began to sing. And as they did, then God stepped in. And maybe he would do that this morning for you. God, remind me of your promises. Lord, grant me joy. Now I'm gonna sink and leave the rest to you. Because I want a joy that's not manufactured, that is inexpressible and glorious. And this morning, no matter where you are or where you've been, that joy is held open for you. You may have been far from God. You may have been faking the funk for a long time. Today, find that joy in him. Don't let communion time pass without you finding somebody to pray with you and say, I need today to be my day. And this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, as we open four stations for communion, four corners around the room, come and receive in your hands as the body and blood of Christ is offered to you in that little cup. Receive joy. Or the anchor that holds you to joy. If you're a believer in Christ, we open communion to you. Please feel free to come as, the Lord, as you see fit, as the Lord leads you. Let's sing together of the greatness of our God. Father, we pray that you would stir our souls with affection for you. We pray that you would help us to find what it means to be a joyous people who are full of glory. Father, I pray that you would help us to turn away from any false sources of joy and that we'd find it in the true fountainhead, that we'd be known as a people who have docks of joy, that not for the glory and reputation of our church or ourselves, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.